Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 19, the end of Numbers chapter 15. We're going to continue tonight in Numbers chapter 15, and we're going to bring it to a conclusion. Now last week, the highlight was probably the discussion of the man who was executed for gathering sticks, for gathering firewood on the Sabbath, the Shabbat. And we discovered that the man was actually subject to two penalties. One was a civil, if you would, judicial penalty for violating the Sabbath law. And that particular penalty was physical death by means of stoning. But the second penalty he had to suffer was of divine origin. That is, it was going to be accomplished by God, and in Hebrew it's called karet. K-A-R-E-T. In its simplest English sense, karet means to be cut off. Now what these two penalties together demonstrate is the basic underlying Christian principle that as humans, we are comprised of a physical component and a spiritual component. God usually lets men, by means of his moral laws and commandments, and then human governments, deal with the physical aspects of punishment for violations of the moral laws. But the meeting out of punishment upon the spiritual component of humans is in God's hands alone. Because in the end, it's the most devastating and permanent action and thus cannot possibly be something that's trusted to the judgment of mere men. You know, it's rather common throughout the ages, frankly, to be excommunicated from a church or a religious institution, but you know, that's only a physical, earthly act, despite what the leaders of that group might claim. Only God himself has the authority to dissolve the relationship, which is what correct is, between you and him. And that dissolution is accomplished spiritually not by some writ or declaration of a human who claims to be his representative on earth. Now today, we move to a device that Yehovah instructed for the per- express purpose of assisting men to avoid these missteps when it came to obeying his laws. And that device is in Hebrew, tzitzit. Then there's more to tzitzit that meets the eye, or as said in these two verses here in Numbers. Let's reread this short section of Numbers 15 about tzitzit and their purpose. Numbers 15, uh, open up your Bibles, if you have the complete Jewish Bibles, to page uh, 167. Page 167. I'm going to read from verses 37 to the end, just a short section. Adonai said to Moshe, Speak to the people of Israel, instructing them to make throughout their generations tzitziot, plural tzitzit, 
tzitziot, on the corners of their garments, and to put with the tzitzit on each corner a blue thread. It is to be a tzitzit for you to look at, and thereby remember all of Adonai's mitzvot, commands, and obey them, so that you won't go around wherever your own heart and eyes lead you to prostitute yourselves. But it will help you remember and obey all my commands and be holy for your God. I am Adonai, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt Egypt, in order to be your God. I'm Adonai, your God. Well, in the most ancient era of Hebrew culture, tzitzit more or less literally meant lock of hair. Okay. Indeed, a tzitzit resembles a lock of hair. And in modern terms, it looks much like we, what we, uh, we might call a tassel. But of course, in ancient times, tassels began as but decorative locks of hair. Right. As with so many of these sorts of things that we find in the Torah, the concept of a tzitzit was not an entirely new invention. As much as it was a kind of evolution and transformation of something that already existed. Ancient etchings and and, uh, pictographs from various regions of Asia show that the wearing of tassels on garments was fairly widespread. Though as far as anybody knows, the Hebrew purpose for the tassels, the tzitzit, was quite unique. And that stated purpose for tzitzit is laid out in Numbers 15, verse 39. That when the Israelites look at them, it would remind them of God's commandments. It's just that simple. And so we see how this instruction is connected to the story of the man who gathered the firewood on Shabbat. The tzitzit were intended to be a constantly worn reminder that God's laws were to be obeyed so that the Israelites would not commit sins against the Lord and thus be subjected to the curse of the law. Well, the vast majority of details concerning exactly how a tzitzit is to be made and worn are tradition. We get the primary biblical instructions right here in Numbers 15, and there is precious little said about the subject. However, if we're to understand today the significance of tzitzit, we must begin by understanding what the writers of the Old Testament understood. That what was worn as or on the hem of one's garment was an indication of one's status in the community. Even more, and now please pay very close attention to this, the hem of one's garment was seen literally as an extension of one's own personality and authority. The hem was the common status symbol of the biblical era throughout the Middle East, and in even somewhat earlier times. Now you might scoff and say, the hem of a garment as a status symbol? As an extension of one's personality? Sure, we do the very same thing, only in different ways in each culture of the world. 
an American general, we believe the car we drive or the brand of the clothing we choose says something about who we are. Christians often plaster their cars with bumper stickers and various religious insignias as other means of explaining something about our beliefs. Or we wear crosses, or we wear stars of David, or that three-part symbol, and, and other items that are but visible extensions, if you would, of our personalities and our personas. And don't even think that some people aren't superstitious about those emblems, like St. Christopher's medals, WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do, and so on. See, the hem of the garment back then played a similar role. Now, ancient Akkadian documents indicate that a husband who cuts the hem off of his wife's garment, divorces her. A sorcerer might recite an incantation over a cut-off piece of hem from a demon-possessed person, so much was the hem thought to be a literal extension of that person. And of course, we're going to find several mentions of hems of garments being involved in some of the more famous biblical stories. Though really, we Christians have developed some rather odd notions of what was being indicated, such that had a person in the biblical era listened to our modern-day views about it, they would have just rolled around on the ground in laughter. Now, we're going to get to one of those stories in particular in a moment. First, though, we have to understand that hems of garments actually held legal force thousands of years ago. They were status symbols, but they were more. They were legitimate ID. Thus, kings and very high leaders might wear a very intricate hem that often included the use of the color purple. Purple was and remains a symbol of royalty in most Middle East and Far Eastern cultures, and the practice of using purple as a royal color became practically worldwide eventually. In fact, written records found in Mesopotamia indicate that a seer or a wise man in service to the king was required not only to tell the king his vision or prophetic dream, but that he had to write it down. And once written, the document was presented to that king along with a lock of hair from that seer's own head, and along with that, a piece of the hem of that seer's garment. This was the equivalent of a sworn and notarized affidavit and it indicated the truthfulness of what was recorded. So in the tzitzit, we see this blending of two ancient symbolic elements, the lock of the hair, along with the hem of the garment. But we also need to recognize that it was primarily royalty and aristocrats who had elaborate garment hems, not the common folks. The average common person had no need to display his status, 
Partly because he couldn't even afford it. So we must add to the equation that in the ancient world the concept of hems of a garment as a means of status that at God's direction evolved into tzitzit is also generally considered to be an indication of royalty and it's also legal authority. Now, let's apply that to the Hebrew tzitzit. Basically, the tzitzit is but an extension of the hem. Notice that the tzitzit is commanded to be worn on the corners of the garment. Now, this is usually taken to mean an outer garment. Something that's visible. But let me tell you, not all Hebrew sects accept that. And many wear them underneath their outer garments. The Hebrew word usually translated as corners, put it on the corners of your garment, is kanaf. And kanaf more correctly means extremity or or it means wing, not corner. The idea is that the hem is the extremity of any garment. So it's not the tzitzit that represents the hem, but rather the tzitzit are attached to the hem of the garment. Although exactly how that's to be manifest varied a whole bunch over the centuries. Now there is an Old Testament story about David and Saul that demonstrates the meaning of garment hems in the ancient world at least in the early era of the kings of Israel. The mentally unstable King Saul has determined that he's going to kill David. David has fled with a band of about 600 men from the northern part of Israel down to the southern desert reaches of Israel. Today that area is called Ein Gedi, very near to the Dead Sea. Let's read that story from 1 Samuel 24. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 24. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it is page 325. 325. 1 Samuel 24. We're just going to read a few verses, 1 through 8. 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. From there, David went up and lived in the strongholds of Ein Gedi. And when Shaul, Saul, returned from pursuing the Pilistim, the uh, Philistines, he was told that David was in the desert at Ein Gedi. So Shaul took 3,000 men chosen from all Israel and he went searching for David and his men on the cliffs where the mountain goats are. Now, near some sheep pens along the way was a cave. And Shaul went inside to relieve himself. And it happened that David and his men were sitting in the recesses at the back of that cave. And David's men said to him, Look, the days come that Adonai told you about when he said to you, I'll turn your enemy over to you and you'll do to him whatever seems good to you. Then David stole over to the, stole over unobserved and he cut off the corner of Shaul's cloak. But after doing this, David felt remorse over cutting Shaul's garment. And he said to his men, 
Adonai forbid that I should do such a thing to my Lord. Adonai is anointed as raise my hand against him. After all, he is Adonai is anointed. By saying this, David stopped his men and he wouldn't let them do anything to Saul. Saul got up, left the cave, and went on his way. David and his men were avoiding the patrols the king Saul had been sending out to find David by hiding in the many caves that lace those barren mountains that surround Ein Gedi, which is adjacent to the Dead Sea. In a rather graphic detail, the Bible tells us that Saul wandered into a cave to relieve himself, unaware that just happened to be the very place where David and his men were currently hiding. Well, while King Saul was in the act, David sneaks up behind him. He takes out a knife and he carefully cuts off a portion of the hem of Saul's garment. Later on, David was, I think, oddly remorseful of doing this. And he tells his men, Lord forbid I should have done such a thing. Later on yet, when David is able to have a powwow with Saul, in one of Saul's more and more rare, lucid moments, King Saul responds to David's act of cutting off the hem of his garment by saying to David, Now I know you'll become king. I mean, what, what a strange set of circumstances, an even stranger set of responses. See, the whole key to this story is understanding the very real issue of the authority symbol that rests in the hem of Saul's garment. Even more, it's not unlike the matter when Delilah, beautiful Delilah, conspired to have the locks of Samson's hair cut off. See, to Saul and to David, to every one of that era, the hem was far more of a, of a, than just a symbol. It was an extension of Saul. It was an extension of his persona. It was an extension of his royal essence. By the stealthy removal of that piece of him by David, Saul saw it as a divinely devised transfer of kingly authority from himself to David. And to continue with my analogy of Samson, by the removal of those locks of hair, Samson's tassels, if you would, Samson lost his connection to divine authority and power. More to the point, just as the cutting off of Samson's locks represented his being karet, cut off from God, so it was that Saul saw his him being cut off as his being cut off from his divine status as the king of Israel. You see that? See, the tzitzit holds great meaning. It was, it's manufactured from two different kinds of materials, linen and wool. Now, each tzitzit was to have a single strand of wool dyed to royal blue or royal purple and then surrounded by many strands of white linen. And that single woolen strand of blue is called a tekelet. A tekelet. And it is, it, it, it is key to the meaning of the tzitzit because 
It indicates nobility. Why was royal blue or royal purple considered royal? Because purple was a most difficult and a horrifically expensive dye to make in those days. As a result, only the royal and wealthy could even afford it. In Roman records from about 200 B.C., was found the payment, an accounting record, of what in modern day equivalents would be almost $100,000 for what amounts to one pound of purple dye. Okay. The reason is that the best quality of purple dye in that era was extracted from a very tiny little sea creature called a Murex snail. Okay. But it took about 12,000 snails to produce two grams of purple dye. For sure, due to demand, it wasn't long before a much cheaper but far inferior bluish-purple dye was developed, but aristocrats and royalty would never have used that. And rabbis even prohibited that cheaper and more inferior dye for use in making the tekelet. Now let's stop and think for a minute. Rabbis say that the tzitzit was to be made from a mixture of wool and linen. Does that ring any bells? See, interestingly, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the Lord commands that ordinary Hebrews are not to wear garments made from a mixture of different kinds of thread. Linen, which comes from the flax plant, and wool, of course, coming from a sheep, were not ever to be used in the same article of clothing. Yet here the tzitzit is made of that forbidden mixture, which in Hebrew, that forbidden mixture is called chanets. chanets. Now, for sure, making tzitzit using chanets, mixture of linen and wool, is not specifically called out in the Bible. But very ancient Hebrew sages, later on rabbis, precisely called for shawnets, claiming that it was that day from Mo- that way from Moses' day onward. As a matter of fact, not long ago, in a cave in Israel, some ancient tzitzit were found, largely intact, dating back to the era of uh, the Bar Kokhba rebellion, which was around 135 A.D. And these tzitzit verified the use of wool teclate along with the white linen threads. Now here's what's interesting. Two reasons are given by the Lord for not allowing Israelites to wear garments of mixed threads. First, it symbolizes tevil, confusion. And second, only priests are allowed to wear shanets, garments with mixed threads. In other words, the mixing of threads was allowed only for certain priestly garments. Now let me show you the value of consulting with our Jewish friends, especially Hebrew scholars, when it comes to understanding certain Old Testament passages in their proper context. Allow me to read for you 
what must certainly be one of the most poorly translated verses in the Bible. Turn your Bibles quickly to Deuteronomy 22.9 because as you have different versions, you're going to get different readings. Deuteronomy 22.9. I'd like to have you all there. Deuteronomy 22.9. Now it's going to vary a little bit from Bible to Bible. But here's what the um, NAS, how it reads. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of the vineyard become defiled. Simple enough. Can't do it. Becomes defiled. Except there's a problem with the last word in that verse. The word that's translated as defiled is absolutely incorrect. It's wrong. Okay? The Hebrew word being translated is kadosh. And kadosh has nothing to do with being defiled. In fact, it means the opposite. Kadosh means consecrated. It means to be set apart. It means to be made holy. Of the scores and scores of times in the Bible that Kadosh is used, this is the one and only time that Christian scholars choose to make this word mean the exact opposite of its usual and accurate meaning, holy. Jewish scholars better understand what's going on here. So in Young's literal translation, it says, it's, instead of saying defiled, it says separated. Right? Which is a whole lot closer, but still doesn't quite hit the point. In other words, the problem was sowing two kinds of seeds together, which is carried over then, of course, to the prohibition of mixing two kinds of threads together. It's all related is that doing so makes them holy. And therefore it's only fit for temple service, which can only be performed by priests. This isn't the Tom Bradford doctrine, by the way. Rashi and Ibn Ezra, among many great Hebrew sages, fully agree on this point. There's no argument about it. Are they correct in their interpretation? Well, I don't know that we can be absolutely sure, but it's certainly based on a proper literal reading of the scripture and their unparalleled understanding of Hebrew ritual. In Exodus 39.28 and 39.29, while describing the sash of the ordinary priests in the high priest's turban, his great hat, the mitre, says this, And the turban of fine linen, and the decorated caps of fine linen, and the linen breeches of fine twisted linen, and the sash of fine twisted linen, and blue and purple scarlet material, the work of a weaver, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. See, the key in the second half of this verse couplet, where after it says a fine twisted linen, the word and is inserted before blue and purple and scarlet material, separating the fine linen from the colored material. And when one looks at the wording of the law 
on making priestly garments. This is a very strange word construction that departs from the normal and from all the other descriptions on how to make priestly garments. So the ancient rabbis said that this indicates that the blue, purple, and scarlet material is not linen. It's something else. And the material has to be wool because it was going to be woven and it was the only other common material used to make garments. There wasn't anything else. Now, you and I can argue about all this if we wish. We can say we're straining gnats to even talk about this. But the fact remains that the oldest Hebrew targums and other ancient Hebrew documents known clearly state that the priest's sashes, these great belts around their waist, and the high priest's grand head covering was based on this principle of using two different materials. Now, why did the rabbis think that the priests could do this, but the Israelites in general could not? Why could they have things made out of two separate materials, but ordinary Hebrews couldn't? Because God had separated the entire tribe of Levi away from Israel. Technically, Levites weren't even any longer Israelites. In fact, from this separation of Levi from Israel on, God says that just as Israelites are ger, we studied this, protected foreigners to him, so are Levites, ger, protected foreigners, to the Israelites. The priests were different from the general Israelite population, and this is completely and plainly scripturally based, as I've demonstrated to you on countless lessons in this class. So, why did I go through all that long explanation? Because tzitzit are an exception to the Torah prohibition against wearing mixed fabrics. And they are an exception because, according to the rabbis, the tzitzit are modeled after the special priestly garments that no regular Israelite is permitted to wear. Otherwise, their garments would become holy. And that is not permitted. The tzitzit represents the reality that God has declared all Israel to be, at some level or another, holy. Leviticus 19 tells Israel, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So, just as the high priest's special head covering is shanets, made of mixed materials, that thus is holy, so the sash of the regular priest, his belt, is um, uh, holy. And the tzitzit, to be worn on the hem of a garment by ordinary Israelites, is holy. Now look at this amazing hierarchy that's set up when we understand what's actually being stated. The high priest's head is covered with shawnets. The regular priest's waist or middle is covered with shawnets. And the common person wears shawnets in the form of tzitzit between his knees and his ankles. High, middle, low. 
See, this represents gradients, various levels of holiness. And this allowance, commandment of God actually, for common Israelites toward tzitzit, is the grand epitome of the instruction that Israel is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We've seen this model of gradients or degrees of holiness before. One of the prime models of it is the temple itself, where we have the highest degree of holiness represented in the Holy of Holies chamber, a middle level of holiness represented by the holy place chamber, and a lower but still holy level of holiness in the outer court where God's ordinary people, members of Israel, can gather. This this is a pattern. And thus, we can expect to see this pattern reflected and demonstrated in all kinds of ways throughout the Holy Scriptures. And we do. By adding to the tzitzit the single blue woolen thread that signifies royalty, adding it to the white linen thread surrounding it that signifies priesthood, the two are combined. Every Israelite dons a symbolic measure of holiness. Every Israelite had a measure of priest in him, so to speak. Every Israelite has been set apart to one measure or another to serve God. Now, as to the more practical matter, of just how the tzitzit were worn. There's no doubt that they were originally attached to ordinary, everyday garments at the hem level, down low. And I suspect they got filthy. They got stepped on, yanked off, you name it. So over time, a whole separate garment was developed that was called a talit. And it was the talit that held the tzitzit. Now the talit was a rectangular piece of cloth that had a head hole in it. And when worn, generally it went down to just below the waist on both the, the back and the front. And it was upon the four corners of this talit that the tassels, the tzitzit, um, were attached. Now this kind of talit was a, was, was a middle garment. It wasn't a, a full, full undergarment, yet usually an outer garment like a coat was worn over the top of it. But it did leave the hem of the talit along with the attached tzitzit exposed and showing. Now later, some Hebrews, not all, modified the use of the talit until it became a separate garment entirely that became what we now call a prayer shawl. Something more like a large head covering or a portable prayer booth. And tzitziot, plural tzitzit, were attached to the four corners of the prayer shawl. Depending on the sect... Tzitzit and Talit today are used in some combination or another of all of the above that we've just talked about. 
As I mentioned earlier, some sects wear them exposed, others wear them completely underneath their outer garments, and you'd never know. So, piece of advice. When you say talit to a Jew, be aware that he may not be thinking prayer shawl, like what you're thinking. Okay, He may be thinking of that middle garment, often worn under his coat, to which his tzitzit are attached. Now, this exact scenario that we just discussed was in full operation in Jesus' day, and the New Testament makes it very clear that Jesus wore tzitzit, what most English New Testament translations will call fringe, and just let me quote a couple of passages for you. Don't go there. Matthew 9.20 And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If only I touch his garment, I shall get well. Matthew 14.34 And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret, uh, the, the Sea of Galilee. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent into all that surrounding district and brought to him all that were sick. And they began to entreat him that they just might touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. Now we can reasonably debate whether the fringe of Yeshua's garment, tzitzit, was on a prayer shawl or it was attached to a middle garment that he wore, or located at the bottom of a skirt robe type of affair. All right, that was the typical dress of folks of that era. But what's not arguable is that that fringe, for sure, was tzitzit. Right. There is absolutely no record of any other kind of fringe that Hebrews wore at the hymn, except for Hellenist Jews of the elite classes who had adopted Roman ways and would wear those fancy hymns to show their aristocratic status. Jesus sure didn't fall into that class. Now let me point out something else. This practice was not limited to men. This is a misconception. Okay. Women did and do observe the wearing of tzitzit, although, as one would expect, the practice completely varies from one Jewish sect to another. In general, the wearing of tzitzit by women was and remains, among most Jewish sects, a personal choice. Okay. It was so in Jesus' day as well, and this is well attested to in, in, in documents from that era. This is not up for grabs. Now, $64,000 question. How might this affect Gentile Christians? Well, as with so many things that we encounter in Torah that have evolved in practice according to a mixture of scripture and tradition, just how Christians are to deal with this command is not entirely clear. It's a little fuzzy. I've already stated to you that while ordinary Israelites could not wear clothing of mixed fabrics, the priests, according to all known documents, could and did. 
And consider what John said in Revelation concerning our, as believers, new position, whether Jew or Gentile, before the Father. He said in Revelation 1.4, John, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Shalom, obviously is what he said. From him who is and was and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom of priests. To his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, John states that believers are as priests to God. Now, just how literally were to take that statement, a bit debatable. I'm not sure, but I lean towards a pretty literal interpretation of that. Okay. At its most liberal, we've been given a similar status as the priests of Israel. At its most metaphoric, we are at least priest-like in the sense that we're God's servants in Christ. Point being, the priests were not completely prohibited from actually wearing fabrics of mixed material. Since that is the case, then any believer, Jew or Gentile, needs to take that into consideration when deciding whether or not that Torah command not to mix material in our garments is for us as priests. However, the question of whether we can or should wear tzitzit is another issue. I can say this with confidence, though. It is for absolute sure, the wearing of tzitzit by a Gentile believer is certainly not wrong. At the very least, we can say that. You have every right. Now, the issues, I believe, are intent... What's your intent? And the principle that is embodied in the commandment. What's your intent when wearing tzitzit? When many of us wear crosses or such, for some, frankly, it's just a decoration. For others, it is indeed a reminder of who we are and who he is. The stated reason for wearing tzitzit in Numbers 15 is what? To remember. Who, to, to, to remember his word. To remember to obey his commands so that we don't go astray in sin. That's the purpose of tzitzit. And this says we need to do things. The principle is we need to do things that constantly remind us that obedience to Him is key to our relationship with Him. However, to think that wearing a tzitzit or a cross or a star of David is required for salvation or to stay saved or that it gains us a greater favor with God or that it's a magic charm is very misguided. The issue of just what in the law 
is a culturally, Hebrew culturally, based expression of God's princess versus what is a non-culturally based expression is not always easy to discern, folks. Obviously, the prohibitions against things like adultery, stealing, lying, murder are culturally neutral. Other things, like wearing fabrics of mixed cloth, hairstyles, whether or not a man should have a beard, and all that sort of thing, are deeply steeped in culture. So we're each going to have to carefully consider whether the wearing of tzitzit is intended to be a cross-cultural expression or not, and thus whether or not the God principle behind tzitzit can be legitimately expressed in other ways. What we wear does not, by all I can tell, give us a status boost with God. With tzitzit, the stated purpose for wearing it is summed up in three verbs, three action words, that characterize the 39th verse of Numbers 15. Those three verbs are look, recall, observe. Look at the tzitzit, which recalls God commandments to our minds, and thus we observe those commandments. We do them. We'll start number 16 next time.